job I sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I Hello and welcome to Radio Free Canada. I am your regular host, Kevin Annett. Welcome back. It's June 25th, here as always. Today we are holding up a hero, my friend William Coombs, who I knew for over five years in Vancouver. He was one of the people on the street with nothing at his disposal except himself and the truth that he held in his hands. He's one of the people who forced the truth of genocide in Canada out into the open. He paid the ultimate price for that. He was medically murdered as a result of his uh, forced admission into St. Paul's Hospital in 2011, soon, uh, very soon before he was to give testimony in England about what he witnessed in October 1964, the abduction and disappearance, permanent disappearance of 10 Aboriginal children from the Kamloops Catholic School uh, at the hands of Queen Elizabeth the Prince Philip. He was an eyewitness to that. And we have with us today... Uh, woman called Erica Kelly. She was a nurse who tended to William just before he died. She has a lot of inside information to show, I believe, that he died of foul play in the hospital. We're going to get to Erica in a minute. People often ask on a program, why the Republic of Kanata? Why a different jurisdiction? Well, the, the murder of William and 50 or 60,000 other innocent children at the hands of the Crown system is reason enough. There is a moral and legal imperative for all of us to not be part of a crime in which we have been part and to change ourselves in the process, to say we're not obligated under any system of law to give support, tax money, or legitimacy anymore to a regime that committed mass murder. So we're not doing that. We're standing under a new common law jurisdiction. This program is devoted to the people who are not going to be part of this murderous conspiracy anymore. That's why we're here all the time. You can follow our work, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. There's the hard evidence of what we're talking about. Also, a recently published book, my 12th book, actually. It's called Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. It features uh, four of our fallen heroes, including William Coombs. It's a personal account of how these men lived and died. You can find it on amazon.com. Go to itccs.org for a recent description of it. That's Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four including William Coombs. Now, before we get to Erica, I do have a, a relevant uh, news item just came over our desk uh, yesterday. It's, again, about the whole topic of medical genocide, medical murder. Yet another mass grave has been uncovered in Ireland. This news story came out uh, just this last week. A, you know of the mass grave of over 800 children that was found in the uh, Bon Secours Catholic Orphanage in Toome, Ireland, well, a second one has now been unearthed of over a 1,000 children found in a mass grave in Besborough County near Cork in the south of Ireland. This, uh, during the 1950s and 60s, many of these children died as a result of drug testing protocols done by this company Burroughs Wellcome, which was a predecessor to GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, or the British-based pharmaceutical company, one of the biggest ones in the world, that work with churches all over the world, using children out of orphanages, residential schools, and other places in drug testing protocols. Thousands of children have died as a result of this, and uh, this is coming out again. Now, of course, the Irish government and the Catholic Church are doing their usual number of concealment and denial. The government's announced a public inquiry, but of course, in that double-think, uh, double-talk language, what that means is that they are moving in to hide the evidence just like they did across Canada in their bogus so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So um, this is yet another example of what we're talking about. And it's interesting, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, the big pharma company that is, uh, you know, descended from the company that worked with the Catholic Church to cause the death of so many children in these drug testing protocols, GSK has been very active in Canada, of course, it, and at the St. Paul's Hospital, where William met his death, the Nanaimo Indian Hospital, other facilities run by the churches, the United Catholic and Anglican Churches, the government, Big Pharma, all using children in drug testing uh, protocols. So this is, again, very much related to the topic today of targeted killings of whistleblowers like William Coombs and the bigger issue of the war on humanity that's been conducted. Uh, we're going to get into all of this um, with our guest, uh, Erica Kelly. She's a former nurse at St. Paul's Hospital, retired now, 
also an employee of what's called Providence Healthcare, which is run by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese in Vancouver. Providence Healthcare, and, and just a final note before Erica comes on, uh, Providence Healthcare connected, directly run by the Catholic Church, and St. Paul's Hospital itself has worked hand-in-glove with the Canadian genocide from the beginning. St. Paul's Hospital in downtown Vancouver has uh, been the site of the death of many Aboriginal people. It's the site where Native children who were killed in residential schools were brought, fake death, issue, uh, death certificates issued when they died. There's a long history of that we've had from many of the eyewitnesses we've interviewed. Um, and also, the um, uh, St. Paul's Hospital is uh, part of the whole system of child tra- trafficking. We've gotten into that as well, how children... Are, that are birthed there, uh, they're alienated from their mothers and then they're trafficked through the system. So St. Paul's Hospital, not accidentally, was set up the very first year that residential schools were set up on the coast in 1891. So again, this facility has been part of the Canadian genocide from the beginning. Uh, I understand Erica is now with us on the, on the line, so we're going to bring her on now. Hello, Erica. Hello. Hi, Kevin. It's really great to have you on, and very important in terms of the memory of William and, and so many others who have died, to have somebody who was there with him. William was an amazing man and my friend, and, and I know that uh, you got to know him somewhat as well. Could you talk a little bit about you know, how you, your first contact with William and, and kind of setting the scene for what we're going to talk about? Mm-hmm. Well, um it was pretty unusual unusual circumstances. Uh, I was called to take care of William by uh, not the staffing, uh, which is usually where I got uh, called into shift. I was called directly by the unit head RN of the acute care medicine, <clears throat> the seventh floor of, of St. Paul's. And uh, she had asked me to come in for what's called as uh, uh, constant care. So I just had William to take care of, which was, I like those shifts. I could just focus on 100% being there for someone. Um, so when I uh, came to the first shift, um, I found a very soft-spoken, uh, gentle, but underneath I could tell a strong character, Um he had a good sense of humor, but uh, you, you kind of had to coax it out of him. And uh, we actually kind of really hit it off. Um, but there was there was red flags right from the get-go, uh, including being called by the by the head RN and not staffing, uh, as well as uh, when I came to came to the shift and read his chart before I even went in, uh, I was informed that that wasn't his real name. I was informed that he had a protected identity, which I'd come across before, and we just don't ask any questions about it. Um, so the name on his chart happened to be Ernie Kuhn. And uh, I remember thinking that that's Mr. Dress Up. Right. Um, I didn't know anything about uh, William's past at the time, uh, but I read his chart, and there wasn't really a whole lot in it as far as the diagnosis. There was a diagnosis of unspecified infection and uh, some, some uh, one medication, nothing else, uh, nothing else for any uh of mental health issues. It was just she was on what's called furosemide, which is a, a, a fluid shift drug. It, usually it's prescribed for people that uh, have either fluid retention with swelling or uh, congestive heart failure, which wasn't on his chart, or liver disease or, or kidneys, issues with the kidneys, which is kind of common. Kidney disorders are kind of common in that genetic type um, that uh, so anyways she uh, was in a private room which is usually reserved for infectious diseases those rooms are rather small they have a, a double door with a curtain and they have a, a negative flow of air that can be set up and and there was no infection protocol 
in place. The, the, the negative flow of air wasn't turned on. I wasn't told to wear a mask or a gown or anything. So in other words, there was no indication he was actually infected with anything from the basis of what you were told to uh, Yeah. Yeah. I, well, there was a high white blood cell count. There was something going on, but it wasn't contagious. Um, so when I first talked to you, that was a bit of a surprise. I'll, I'll just finish with my observations from what I remember. You have to understand that I have an uncanny uh, photographic memory when it comes to things in particular that I write, and this is pretty much what I remember seeing on the charting I did with them for four days in a row and what I remember reading of the previous day's charting. So... He's on this drug for swelling. I observed no, little to no edema, no swelling. He did report being sore all over. He did have a couple of bruises on his arms, not particularly deep ones, but that I do remember reporting them. And there was uh, one bruise that I did see on his side, that by his wrist. Um, he never had an IV fluids in all the four shifts I was with him when it should have been <clears throat> because he did have low blood pressure uh, and low potassium, which is indicating of uh, either too great of a fluid shift with the LASIK or he came in with low blood pressure. Um, so um, I remember trying to get him to drink uh, a little bit of water every 30 minutes or so because I knew that his, because of his low blood pressure, I wanted to get more fluid, more blood in his system because he was reporting so much dizziness. And was there, he was went, there an explanation why he wasn't on an IV? Um, I did try to ask about this from the first shift onward, and uh, the first couple of times that I asked, I asked the head RN that had called me to the unit, and she she did read his chart and went and talked to people about it, but I never saw one put in. I, I wasn't an RN. I was an LPN. I didn't, I wasn't, at that time, we weren't putting in IVs. Sorry, what's an LPN? A licensed practical nurse. Okay. Yeah. Now, Tell us a little bit about some of the anomalies you've noticed. We, you know, mentioned when we were talking about um, a lumbar puncture in his back, but no record of it on the chest, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, so he went to the bathroom a lot, and that's when I would see him. Uh, I would go in to help him because he was so often so dizzy. And that was the first time that I saw the Band-Aid on his lower back, uh, which was exactly where you would get, it was the exact location that you'd get what's called a lumbar puncture. Now, in our two years of school, you know, we, we study all the tests and why you have certain tests, and it's, it doesn't take a lot of detective work to, oh, he's had a lumbar puncture. The next time I left the room, I checked his chart. There wasn't any previous charting saying a lumbar puncture was going to happen, and there wasn't any results sheet in the chart saying anything about uh, returned results from an LP. Um, so he definitely had had one because he was he had the headache and he had the dizziness. And so, I did ask him. Hmm? Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, is that unusual then for him to have had one and there be no record of it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, I knew. The unit clerk very well that was there. She was actually a, a former LPN herself. In fact, she was such a uh, attentive to uh, patients' needs uh, unit clerk that she kept her LPN license active to be able to help us in a moment's notice. In other words, if there was a report or anything that that chart had needed, the flag would have gone up on the side of the charting, and she would have been there and put it in. So I am not sure what happened. Well, this must have been leaving you kind of feeling confused about the situation. Yes. Yeah. Actually, in the back of the chart, there would have been, 
you know, if you'd been transferred from another hospital, if it had done been done there, I remember flipping it right to the back to see, there wasn't even anything that was saying he was at another hospital and had had one done. But if he'd had a Band-Aid there, he had it done within 12 hours. So you, you think that happened to him somewhere else in St. Paul's Hospital? It would have I, 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 I highly, yeah, it probably happened to him in St. Paul's. I don't know how long he was in there before I was called in. I have well, a feeling to, that I was called in fairly quickly after his arrival. Yeah. I, I just so, had a question from a, a listener come up. Uh, she asks, what was the reason given why he had a lumbar puncture? Perfect. Uh, a lumbar puncture is the secondary diagnosis uh, test for tuberculosis, and a number of other sort of uh, uh, dormant or or other types of meningitis, things that can go into the bloodstream, into the brain. That can, yeah, so there's the, the, I'm sure people remember the little skin scratch test for TB. Yeah. Um, that's usually what they do first, and then they do an LP. If that's negative, if they have reason to believe that the person has tuberculosis, it is quite serious that if if a person is out there in the public with active tuberculosis, because you can get it within three feet of them talking. Right. But you didn't see any indication of tuberculosis by him. Did you have any of the symptoms? No. I, I had no... Tuberculosis wasn't even... Even looking at the LP uh, evidence... It wasn't even in my mind. I had undiagnosed uh, infection, a very weak, dizzy headache, sensitive to light, um, no fever, despite his high white blood cells count. Um, he certainly was not coughing, and he certainly had no blood in his sputum. Uh, every day, I listened to his chest. Uh, I asked him if he had any pain when he breathed or when he moved in his chest, and he said no. And so I, there's no evidence that he had any form of tuberculosis. I only found out from talking to you that he that he that the cause of death was the tuberculosis meningitis. Well, that took us five Tubular. months to get a... It took us five months to get the city coroner to release uh, his, his, you know, the, the coroner's report, and the cause of death said tubercular meningitis. Um, mm-hmm. Now, now hold that for a moment because I wanted to mention the fourth thing that's the anomaly here: this meeting that you were called into. Do you want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah. So, um, on about the last shift I was with William, I did about four shifts in total. I was called out of the room by the the head RN again. And she called me out of the room, and I went out because you just some things you you don't want to say in front of the patient. I had no idea. She just asked me to come out, so I came out. And on a constant care shift, you're usually supposed to stay in the room. So I I was mostly in there. Plus, I I like talking with him, and he seemed to like me around. Anyways, I go into the hall, and she says to me, um there's a meeting and you're, you're, you're being asked to come in. And I at first thought, Oh, it's a family meeting. That's the only meeting that I've ever been asked to go to without the patient. There is some sort of family meeting where, and usually the doctor is there and some family members and they sit and all of you sit and talk about how the patient's doing. Right. You know, and it's not necessarily about, uh, mental health. It's usually about their care plan, you know. Okay. Um, so I was, uh, I walked into the room and I saw no family. And uh, there was three people sitting there. And one worked at St. Paul. One had a badge. And I had never seen her before. And the two others had no badges that I could see. Uh one was wearing a full suit, you know, white shirt and everything. The other one was wearing a suit jacket with a sweater underneath it, slightly more casual. But uh, that gentleman uh, looked native, but not uh, not the uh, more uh, southern 
native. He looked more like uh, the northern native. Uh, so he so looked were a two, bit different. There were hmm? two men that you'd never seen before there. Never then, seen them before. Did they identify themselves? Um, no, they went straight into it. They went straight into it. The one that, that, that looked native uh, was staring quite heavily at me, had very thick eyebrows, and I just immediately was like, okay, this is very serious, you know. I was thrown off by family not being in there and the doctor not being in there, never seeing that other woman. So uh, the first thing they asked me was, um, was uh, what had had William been talking about? And I just literally, this also threw me off. I just, I felt like it's very difficult for me to remember this meeting compared to my time with William because it just didn't feel right. Um, I kind of ignored him, his question. I didn't even like to look at him really. You know, he, he, what did he, what had he been talking about? And I just went, I asked him why he didn't have an ID in or any antibiotics for his infection. Did, did they know what he was infected with? Mm-hmm. And they ignored my question. Um, I didn't get the feeling they were concerned for his physical health. Well, there was no evidence they were even doctors, was there? N- no, there wasn't any, you know, psych consult order that would have been in the charts again. Okay. Um, and these weren't, I knew, I knew the people that did the rounds for site consult. These were not any of them. These were, except for the woman, these were people from outside the hospital. And what else did they have? Uh, so what's his, they asked me again in a different way, more in a medical terminology, what's his mental status? What has, you know, and these mental status. And uh, instead of what has he been talking about? And... I just, my hackles were so up at that point that I said the only thing that I knew to say to keep him from going to a psych evaluation, which was he was having no suicidal ideations and no mention of doing harm to himself or anyone else. That's what I said. I just, somehow I felt protective of him. All right. Now, let me just um, add something here for the listeners. Um, what I was told by William's partner, May, who had accompanied him to VGH, because after he was with you at St. Paul's Hospital, he was sent to Vancouver General Hospital where he died. Yeah, and, that's where I was informed that he had passed away. Right. Now, um, when William went to VGH, uh, apparently within 12 hours he was pulled off life support. He went into some kind of coma and they pulled him very quickly off life support without even consulting the family, and that's how he died. Now, um, you were telling me that family permission is not required. If I've got this right, if the person is, is mentally incompetent, they can, he can become a ward of the hospital, and they can make that decision to pull yes. him off life support. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. I you have think- the unfortunate uh, uh, experience of my charting having committed two people to that. So, do And I don't do it lightly. No. But do you think there's a connection between them asking about his mental state and that issue oh. of who was it who could have pulled him off life support? Absolutely. I don't see how they could have done it so quickly, though. Um, perhaps that's why they put him with me, because I did have a reputation in the, in the medicine floors for... Um, getting quote-unquote difficult patients to sort of open up. Right. You know, uh, and and that's just because of my personality. Like, I, I don't uh, I don't talk down to them, you know. Okay. I, you know, you got to meet people where they are, right? If you're trying to help them, they got to, you have to sort of talk them into wanting to help themselves. And, um, it just, so much of this felt wrong, and and I remember William's energy, and it stuck with, it sticks with me to this day. You know, there was one shift with, with him 
that is probably why I, I stood up for him and felt defensive of him. Um, he had called me into the bathroom. The door was closed because he was going a lot because of the, the Lasix makes you go to the bathroom. Plus, I was trying to make up for no IV by giving him water. He called me in there, and I knocked on the door. Okay, I'm coming in. And he was sitting down, and he said, I'm, so, I'm dizzy. I can't get up. I feel so weak. I feel so weak. And uh, I said, okay, it's all right. We'll get you up. All right. And I, I gently helped him up. I mean, he was so sensitive to the touch, right? Like, you know, I practically had to hug him, so I wasn't putting any one part of me too deep into his. So I got him up, and he got his hand up on the on the sink, and he's facing me, but he's not looking at me. He's looking at the floor. And he says to me, real quiet, but I heard it. I'm just an animal. I'm and just an I, animal? I'm just an animal. Why do you think he said that? I know where 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 it hit me. It, it, my heart just, just like hit the floor. Uh, why? Do we, I know why he said it now in hindsight, but instinctively in the moment, yeah, my heart hit the floor, and I said to him, "No, William, no, no, Ernie." <laughs> I said, "We're the animal. That's white people." In fact. Animals are better than us. And uh, a little smile came on his face, and he looked at me, and he laughed real quiet. Sounds like him, yeah. And um, it was the day after that that I had the meeting with the uh, with the with the. Right. Now let me. Uh, we're at the bottom of the hour, and I, I want to get on to other aspects of this, but let mm-hmm. me try to summarize here, and, and let me tell me if you think this is accurate, um, because from the other information we had. And one of the questions from the listeners, what's the reason given as to why William has summoned the St. Paul's in the first place? I was told by his partner, May, that he was ordered by Native Health to report very quickly to St. Paul's Hospital. And he was escorted there by RCMP officers. In other words, it was forced. He didn't have a choice. They said, you are going down to St. Paul's. And uh, the, the question of his name as well, his brother, Ernie, he had a brother named Ernie Coombs who had died at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. William had told me that Ernie had been killed by a priest there, and yet William is given the name oh, of his yeah. dead brother when he's admitted into St. Paul's. And, and, and uh, I was made to use it, and there's so many implications for that that aren't good. I Just by using the name of a dead relative with someone is a trigger to kind of bring them back to that um, time in their lives. For what purpose? And to trigger the feelings that they, that he had had. I, I knew about the residential schools before, and that's possibly why my heart sounds so bad when he said that. But I didn't know that he had been in one specifically. I was getting hints at that point, but so that that's and to give someone a dead person's name, you know what they do with that. That's to sort of, you're already dead. Absolutely. And also, if anyone's trying That's to trace awesome. him, you've got a, a fake name and it's harder to trace. Now, um, let, let me just put something here to you. If, <laughs> and that's to protect patients. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay. So it looks like from everything you're describing that he was brought in and... and he was deliberately medically killed. Is that yeah, well, let me, yeah? Let me explain this about the TB infection protocol. So, if someone has been alerted to be actively having TB out in the public someplace, the cops do have the right to come and get you for test. What I would like to know at this point, given you or I, I mean, maybe you were around. Did you ever see him spit blood into a handkerchief? Did you ever no. see him cough a lot? No, as a matter of fact, um, based on that clip I sent you of his interview done just a month or two before he was in the hospital, he was on the mend. He had stopped drinking. You see, we had been engaged in, in protests, and he had been on my radio show at the time. He was feeling very up and confident. He had stopped drinking. He was on the mend, definitely. His whole sense was, was much more powerful. And 
this is what was so odd about how it all happened so quickly. You know. Mm. Well, give a person his brother's name and forcibly take away his his rights as a human being, make him feel like an animal by forcibly making him go to the hospital in a tiny ten by ten room with a yep with a uh, strange Scottish stranger. <laughs> Well, let's um, let's work on the assumption then that he was killed. How exactly did it happen then? Do you think? Uh, well, after you told me what he had died of, um, you know that I proceeded to, you know, I'm I'm no longer a nurse, but I certainly that that part of me was in me, the detective part, um, medical detective. Now, <laughs> I started to look around into it. Um, tubicular meningitis. Uh, is is the result of what's called TB disease. And he didn't exhibit any of the TB disease symptoms unless someone can report that he had blood in his sputum, blood in his mucus when he coughed. And that is the fatal form of tuberculosis. TB is a, a shorthand for tuber- tuberculosis. Um, either way, TB disease or the other milder dormant form of it, TB infection, which can sit latent, dormant in someone's body for a while, and and they can show no infection. But what's interesting about the TB infection is that it doesn't, only 5% of the cases don't get it active TB within two years of exposure. Now, from that one of the other interviews that you that you had done recorded with William, I heard him say that that the uh, priests used to punish the the kids that weren't being compliant with them by putting them in the unit with the the sick with TB kids. They That's deliberately right. exposed them. Yep. And when I heard that. That's when I researched the TB disease and the TB infection because I knew that there was a, a late, uh, a dormant spore form of TB that could hang out in the body and just sort of be in the lymph and then move occasionally elsewhere. Uh, but again, both of these forms are t- of TB are treatable. And that's why they do this. Let's, okay, we've got a suspected TB person out in the public go grab them, and bring them in for treatment. That's why they do that with the cops. But there are no symptoms, and, um, you know, why do you think he would die so quickly? Why would they pull him off life support or VGH if he didn't have any of those symptoms? Because they wanted him to go away. I, I, you know, it's not the first time. I've had a pretty long road since my time working at St. Paul's and... It's not the first time I've I've seen um, literally diseases pop up out of the blue when a person is beginning to be strong, to heal, to speak out about injustices. I've seen this before, and I know it sounds funny, and I don't want people to think that it's, you know, that this is demeaning my, my, my report of medical training, medical train, medically trained observations that I've been given, that, that I've said today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just, you see patterns, right? And, and it's a pattern I've seen. I've seen, uh, there's another uh, virus that can sit latent in most of us. It's there. It turns into shingles later. Mm-hmm. It also causes... Um, paralysis. It can sit in the big nerves in your body and just turn on like that. You know, but this wasn't a case of that. He'd obviously developed a resistance to the tuberculosis because he didn't get it within the two years after he was exposed as a child. The only thing that I can think that has occurred is when we have someone that we count that that yes, the police could have brought in or that they, that have come in for another reason to the hospital, and we discover that they're positive with the TB skin scratch test, we immediately put them into isolation and check everybody else that was in the four bedroom with them. But that's, you didn't do that's that. the protocol, right? With William, that didn't happen with William. No, someone 
someone, someplace, said Williams is suspected to be contagious, to be infected person. But that right? of course was so, bogus. <laughs> so, but the but the the, the hospital based tuberculosis cases, the the nocosomial, the ones that have been the the hospital bugs, people have heard this. There's there's hospital bugs that are like like nothing else in public. They're the resistant to antibiotics. They're the the most voracious, right? You've heard of everyone's heard of MR, MRSA or BRE, right? These different staph based things. Well it's the same thing for tuberculosis. We can it's it's rare, but what I'm trying to infer here is that in that hospital, there was probably vials of blood, of sputum, that had a very strong form of TB, and he could have been exposed. Could have, but there's no... The thing, just going on your experience, it, the, the, the diagnosis or the, the cause of death didn't in any way correspond to what you observed. No. Okay. That's the he would have been coughing for at least three weeks before... Right. He would have had chest pain. He would have had blood. Okay. Now, the other thing is, if the thing about the lumbar puncture on his back, which we talked about earlier, mm. if they went in there and found nothing, then they'd have to obviously make no reference to it in a, in a, in a report if later they were going to give it as the cause of death tuberculosis. They'd have to hide the fact that he didn't actually have it. Would that be accurate? That would be logical, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so... The thing about this whole incident, and the final thing which listeners need to know is, William had been an eyewitness to that abduction at the Kamloops Catholic School in October 1964. He had talked about it on the air. He was in the process of being brought over to London, England, because that summer there was a tribunal being held in London where he was going to give testimony. Two days after I leave... None of this to me. Well, two days after I leave for Europe, he's called into the hospital, and this all happens. So I don't think any of that is coincidental. No, not two days after you're leaving. No. Um, I I found out he died the month that he died, which was pretty much a month after I took care of him. And then about within that next year, I think close to, you know, the fall of that year is when I found your website and right. read about all this. And, and put it together. And it was quite the, oh, my goodness. Or, oh, my God. You know, it was like, I know him. And I I, I left messages on, on, at the time you were doing shows with Wilfred. Uh, Wilfred. <laughs> Alfred. I left messages, uh, comments under his videos and stuff. Oh, and I never got that. I know. No. <laughs> of course, yeah. he, said he did a sabotage number. Of Alfred doesn't, doesn't pay a lot of attention. Uh, attention. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, too, that that same spring is when I was deported from England, when I was over there in May 2011, after William had died. I was uh, imprisoned at the Stansted Airport Im- Immigration. It sounds uh, like they're all working in cahoots, whoever yeah, they are. Banned from the country, yeah. Uh, that's the, yeah. There and that's and that's where I've kind of gone with this. You know, this was a good wake up call for me. Um, William changed how I practiced as a nurse, and it pretty much changed my practice so much I couldn't do it anymore. Right. I couldn't hold people down. I couldn't calm them down after some cowboy, you know, had come in and done something to him and didn't explain anything. I just it was just too, taking too much out of me. I yeah. miss the job. I miss the people. Um, but I don't miss the medical machine. It, it, there's, I saw a lot of stuff in there. I saw a lot of good stuff, really good stuff too, but the, the negative is what sticks out. And I saw right. a lot of, of, of nurses and the doctors too, but they do it more sort of slyly. But I saw a lot of nurses making fun of and, and jiving at the marginalized people, you know, the street people, the poor people. And I didn't like that. And I, and to, to, you know, 
in about that year that I met William, I started to stand up for it, but I really stood up for it after him. It's just, you know, there's an epidemic of being mean to the ones that are down, and it's so opposite to what we're all supposed to be in that profession for. And it always seemed like they were getting some enjoyment out of it, like they were getting some energy from doing it. Well, I want to get into that a little bit. We've only got seven minutes left. We'll have to carry this on, I think, in another interview because there's other aspects to this that we won't have time for today. But there was one thing that happened to you. Do you want to talk about the incident after William had died Mm -hmm. that, that occurred to you? So I wasn't working at the hospital anymore. Um, I was riding my bike home, and uh, I think I already had discovered your your blog and had read about this this point. But I happened to be riding my bike past uh, VGH Hospital on Tenth there, just past where the emergency is, and there's a odd statue there that I hadn't seen before, and I can't seem to find anything on it on the internet about its title or who's the artist that created it, but I I just glanced at it as I'm riding up the hill, and as I glanced at it, I I got like this, like, feeling like I'd been tasered in the forehead. It was really strong, and it hurt, and um, just kind of shook it off, and, and rode the rest of the way up to the top of that little hill and stopped at the at Oak Street there. And um pressure light because it was not not that to, to cross the road because I, I lived up at sixteenth over by uh Burrard. And as I'm up on the sidewalk I had kind of gone around the back of a car and I guess the fella had thought I'd gone too close to his car. I didn't touch it or anything. From the back of it, not the front of it. And he starts yelling at me. And uh, I'm just like, what? <laughs> and he's yelling at me. And then the light turns, and uh, he goes quickly, like, puts on the gas right behind me on my bike. And there's a, more than one bike crossing and people crossing. And um, I quickly realize that he's chasing me. And I've never, I've rode my bike around Vancouver for, you know, 20 years, right? I've never had something like this happen. So I go to turn to go up alleys and go ways that a car can't follow, cutting between apartment buildings where I knew that there was a wide enough path to go down on my bike. And he comes down the alley. And... uh I couldn't believe this. My heart just starts to pound and I keep riding. And uh, at one point, I almost hit him because I came out of a out of a place he couldn't go and, and he was just right there. And it was just the strangest, oddest thing. And I thought about it, like, what did that statue have to do with it? It was almost like he was... It was like something had turned on in this person because there was nothing. There was no reason. I didn't cut him off. There was, I didn't swear at him. I, there was no reason for him to chase me home like this. It was like he was, managed, being, he was being directed? Hmm? It was like he was being directed? Yeah, definitely like it was being directed. Um, I was in a, in a space of, of healing, of, of getting stronger myself, like like William was. Because I, you know, I needed to not work at St. Paul's anymore, and uh, it just there's that's another pattern I've seen is people who once they're getting stronger, once they're they're healing, and and doing the work of of expressing that healing, which usually, you know, inspires others to do their own healing work. I yeah. see people time and time again get get something else happen to them, a sickness or some sort of financial attack or psychic attack. That was a psychic attack. But that was just the beginning of of, of uh, the unfoldment of wake-up calls to how much this happens out there in the world with compassionate, intuitive, yeah. intelligent, you well, know, you mentioned, acting you mentioned. on justice people like yourself. <laughs> when you say psychic attack, you said when you saw those Two guys in suits 
the two strangers, the men in the in the meeting. What impression yeah. did you get off them? What what was your impression of them? Uh, she was putting out a bit bitchy cold energy, just to be thorough. The Caucasian fellow uh, sitting in the middle was officious, and the dark-haired, bushy-eyebrowed, uh, northern native-looking fellow was downright malevolent energy. It, he was trying to uh, intimidate me. So what yeah. What do you think is, um, when you're talking about psychic attacks, psychic energy, what's going on here, do you think? Do you want to talk a little bit about that in a few minutes we have left? Uh, well, <laughs> it, it's, it's, so we've got like five minutes, right? Well, we've got about five minutes, yeah, four or five minutes. Yeah. There's a long, it's a long story, and it's basically from where I'm at at this point in my life, um, well over the decades past all of this, um, it's, there's a war in our minds and our hearts going on. There is, um, there has been a long-standing, almost hidden, or not hidden, but not believed history of of abuse and division of of family from each other uh, for, of humans from any connection to each other uh, we see it much like now but big time with the, all the technology and the cell phones but I'm talking about um, William's statement of I'm just an animal uh, I think many of us who've had sort of a not-so-pleasant childhood can relate to that feeling. And and I think that the vulnerable state of of someone who's who's been in a fight-or-flight situation, of, of feeling like anything could happen, that, that their lives are at risk for any period of time, is, is purposefully done to to the very ones that are the most full of spirit yeah. and and uh, are, are, are humanity's warriors. I didn't know William as a strong person, but I know that you're a warrior, and I know that I'm a warrior. And I know how much I've been attacked. You know, been called a bitch, been called pushy, all sorts of other things. Sorry, but I'm not supposed to swear. Um, sure. <laughs> for standing up for myself or others yep. around me. And I know you've been accused of, of things that are also completely inverted to who and what you're doing. And, and they think that these attack, sorts of attacks seem to be reserved for just the ones of us that are actually doing something. There's a lot of people out there talking. There's not that many doing something. And the ones that usually are doing something don't have much. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have, a big, you know, they're not high in politics and they've got a lot of clout, you know, as if that matters. You know, they're doing it out of the goodness of their own heart and knowing that it's right. It's what just to do. And we're the ones that, that often get this sort of uh, projection of the exact opposite, even accusations that you are the very groups that are doing this. Right. You know, no, of course. We, it's, the, it's the inversion and the misinformation. But it, it, yeah. I want to have you back again, uh, Erica, and we can talk about this in more detail. But it really needs a whole show about this aspect of it, which was very much directed at William because he was a spirit dancer. He was from that tradition. Um, of this being, he was a spiritual elder among the the, uh, the interior selfish people. So, I want to talk about that. I want to thank you. Unfortunately, we're at the end of the hour almost, and I mm. want to thank you for your very important witness and the words you have today. And thank you for your courage you. in coming on. Thank you. Thank you for for allowing me to honor him um, by coming out in support of what what happened uh, to him at that end because it, it it was mysterious to me and I'm very grateful to be able to shed a new light and again if anyone 
there's anything else that, that they can share about any any something that might have looked like pneumonia or anything, please um, let Kevin know. You yes, know, we're going to be. But, um, this is an ongoing investigation, as with the death of five other members of our network uh, in Canada mm-hmm. who died under similar questionable, obvious foul play circumstances. So, um, yeah, Erica, thank well, you. At least and now we'll, you know the name that they had yeah. him in there as. Yeah. yeah. Erica, That's thank you. Bad. We'll we'll you have you back me. again. Thank you for being yeah. on with us. Bye for now. And just to close, I want to read to you from William's statement, the reason he was killed. I'm an interior, this is his words, I'm an interior sailor spirit dancer and I'm 58 years old. I'm a survivor of the Kamloops and Mission Indian schools, both run by the Catholic Church. In October 1964, when I was 12 years old, I was an inmate at the Kamloops School and we were visited by the Queen of England and Prince Philip. I remember it was strange because they came by themselves, no big fanfare or nothing. And as a note, uh, the Queen was in Canada in October 1964. We checked in the official records, so it's accurate, date-wise. Continued the quote, But I recognized them, and the school principal told us it was the Queen, and we all got given new clothes and good food for the first time in months, the day before she arrived. The day the queen got to the school, I was part of a group of kids that went on a picnic with her and her husband and some of the priests down to a meadow near Dead Man's Creek. I remember it was weird because we all had to bend down and kiss her foot, a white-laced boot. After a while, I saw the queen leave the picnic with ten children from the school, and those kids never returned. We never heard anything more about them and never met them again, even when we were older. They were all from around there, but they all vanished. There were seven boys and three girls in age from 6 to 14. They were all from the smart group in class. Two of the boys were brothers, and they were Métis from Cornell. The last name was Arnold. I don't remember the others, just an occasional first name like Cecilia, and there was an Edward. What happened there was also witnessed by my friend George Adolph, who was 11 at the time, but he's dead now. That's from our itccs.org site. There's more information on William. And again, I urge you to get our book, Fallen, The Story of the Vancouver Four, off Amazon under the name Kevin Anna because that's where you can read a lot of the personal encounter I had with William that led to this medical murder of him at St. Paul's Hospital and Vancouver General Hospital. Until next week, follow our work, murderbydecree.com, itccs.org, write to us, republicofkanata at gmail.com, especially people in Vancouver with any more information on the medical murder of William Arnold Coombs. Until next week, brothers and sisters, stay strong, stay clear, keep up the fight. I thank you. Show me prison, show me jail, show me a prison man whose face is growing pale. And I'll show you, young man, with many reasons why.